Again, that was 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to read verses 14, 15, and 16. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that it is living and active, that it is your revelation of yourself to your people. And that it's not just some other book. God, we pray today that you would send your spirit to help us to understand and be transformed by the words in this book. God, I pray that as we see both who we are as a church and who Jesus is and what he's done for us in this passage, that it wouldn't fall on deaf ears or numb hearts. but that you would wake us up. That you would move us by the greatness of this gospel that we believe. You would show us who you've made us as your people. And that our identity in you should affect how we ought to behave. Jesus, we thank you that it's not our behavior that forms a basis for our salvation, but it's yours. That you obeyed where we couldn't, that you were perfect where we're not, that you are who you are, and that we have redemption in you because of that. We pray this morning that you would just help us as a church to receive your word and to respond to it. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So as we read, this morning's passage is a short one. It's uh, just three verses. That's partly because I think these are three uh, very deep, very important verses, and also for practical reasons, just because the last two weeks I've gone really long, and so I've kind of used up some of your graciousness towards me. So I'm going to try to get that back this week. So in these verses, Paul kind of stops what he's doing to Timothy to tell him something that in some ways it would have made sense for him to tell him earlier, and that's why he's writing this letter. He stops, he's been giving him all these instructions about who should lead the church, how the church should be structured, what kind of orderly worship they should have, and so he today he stops and he says, this is why I'm telling you these things, this is why these things are important. And in the course of that, uh, Paul gives us and Timothy 
uh, three things about who the church is or what the church is. He tells us our identity, our empowerment, and our mission as a church. And then after those things, he's going to remind us again and remind Timothy again and remind his church again of the good news of Jesus Christ. Even though we've heard it before, even though Paul has already told Timothy that multiple times in this letter, he's going to tell him again about the greatness of the gospel that we trust in. And so as we move through this passage, that's kind of what we're going to see. We're going to see him tell Timothy why he's writing. He's going to give him our identity, our empowerment, our mission as a church. And then he's going to give us the gospel because that's why it matters that we are a church. So the first thing we see comes in verse 14 and kind of the first half of 15. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So there's two things here we really need to see in what Paul is telling to Timothy. The first thing is that Paul recognizes that uh, even though he wants to come to Timothy soon, he wants to go to Ephesus where Timothy's at so he can kind of give him a lot of these instructions and a lot of this teaching in person instead of in writing, but he recognizes that there's a good chance that he will be delayed, that something will happen either in his life or in the world or in Timothy's life so that he won't be able to come to him as soon as he wants to. And so what Paul's doing here is he's saying, that's a reality. I might be delayed, so I'm going to write these things now because they're that important. And what we see him doing is what he tells the Ephesians to do in 5.16. In Ephesians 5.16, he tells them, the same church, to make the best use of the time. That's what Paul's doing. He recognizes, I may not be able to go right away. I don't want to waste time. So I'm going to tell Timothy these things now. I'm going to write them. I'm going to send them to him. Because Paul has a sense of urgency about the message that he's been entrusted with. He doesn't want to waste the time. He doesn't want to act as if he's got all the time in the world to do what God has called him to do. And so he says, I know that I want to come to you, but I don't want to be delayed. And so I'm going to go ahead and tell you these things now. And I think that we need the Spirit to do that work in us too. We need him to help us make the best use of our time. Right? We need him to to shake us out of our complacency that we have all the time in the world to do what God has called us to do. That our neighbors, our co-workers, our family members, the people that live around us, that they have all the time in the world for us to, you know, get up off the couch and share the gospel with them. We should have this attitude. We should have, I hope to share with them soon, but just in case I can't, I'm going to do it now. I'm not going to put off obedience anymore. I'm going to make the best use of the time that God has given me because he's called me to do that. That's what we see Paul doing here. The second thing we see here is that that our behavior matters. Paul writes to Timothy so that we can know how we ought to behave in the church, as the church. Our behavior matters because we represent him. We represent the gospel to the world around us. And as I was studying this week for this passage, this I didn't really like this section. Kind of kept hearing Paul talking to me like a mom, saying, Dan, this is how you ought to behave. You know, this is what you ought to do, this is what you ought not to do. And that troubled me because of of 
really, there's two, so there's, there's two ways I want to qualify the fact that our behavior matters. The first, I think, is really familiar to us at BC, right? We are continually reminding ourselves that we are saved not on the basis of what we do and who we are. We're saved on the basis of who he is and what he's done. And so our behavior does not matter for our salvation. His behavior is the sole basis of our salvation. Right? We're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Period. And so our behavior matters, but our behavior doesn't save us. Our behavior is the obedient response to what he's done in us. And the second way I want to qualify the fact that our behavior matters is in this is in how the gospel, how the good news, how the Holy Spirit produces this kind of behavior in us. And this uh, was really helpful to me this week as I was studying this. It kind of blew my mind, and I hope that it does the same thing for you. I hope it causes you to just, in some ways, get eaten alive by this thought process this week. Uh, Some of this is going to be boring to you because it's grammar. And I get that most people don't get as excited about grammar as I do. But I get excited about it because uh, it's, it's fun if you're a nerd. And so as I was studying this week and reading about our behavior matters and thinking, Paul, why are you talking to me like you're my mom? You're not my mom. Why are you telling me how I ought to behave? I kept looking into this word more and more, trying to figure out, you know, I know that's not what Paul is saying to me, so what is it that he is saying to me? And what this word means here when Paul says we, we ought to behave is that it's that we conduct ourselves or behave or live in line with a set of principles or a principle. That's what he's telling us to do. He's telling us to conduct ourselves, to live in such a way that our lives are in line with or based upon a principle or set of principles. And it's not really focused on kind of these individual acts or individual points of behavior or actions. It's focused on the the entire course of life. So it's not the level of actions, but lifestyle that Paul is telling us that we need to, you know, behave in such a way. And so for Christians, right, it should be obvious, right? We live our lives, we conduct ourselves on the basis of the gospel, on the basis of what God's Word says, on the basis of the Holy Spirit living within us. Those are the principles that we conduct our lives on. But there's more. And this is where the grammar comes in. This verb that Paul uses when he tells us to behave is passive. So an active verb is like, I hit the ball. A passive verb is, I am hit by the ball. The first one, I act upon the ball. I take action. The second one, the ball acts on me. It hurts me. This word Paul uses here is passive. Now, it's not that uncommon for a New Testament author like Paul or Luke or Matthew or whoever to use a passive word that has an active meaning. But I don't think that's what Paul is doing here. I think that Paul is being intentional as he tells us about how the gospel affects our behavior, about how the gospel transforms how we conduct our lives. Because the gospel isn't just another set of principles, right? It's not just something that's kind of over there that's innocuous that I can choose. Am I going to base my life on this or not? The gospel is a set of principles that act on me. 
right? I'm, I'm passive in a lot of ways as I seek to live out the implications of the gospel. The Holy Spirit does that work in me. And so when we think about Paul telling us we ought to behave in a specific way, what we need to recognize is that behavior isn't something that we just do on our own through willpower or determination or pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. It's something that's done in us. It matters that we behave in specific ways because our behavior is proof or evidence of what's being done in us, of what's been done to us. Does that make sense? That that has been so helpful to me this week as I've thought about my actions, as I've thought about my life, the fact that what I do isn't me just trying to do it in my own willpower, but it's me living in response to what is being done to me by something else. I'm not the actor. I'm being acted upon by the gospel, by the Holy Spirit's transforming work in me. And if you're a Christian, that's what's happening to you too. Our behavior matters. It matters because it's evidence of what's being done in us. And it matters because of who we are. And that's where Paul turns next. In verse 15, he explains who the church is. He gives us our identity, our empowerment, and our mission. The identity comes in the first phrase, the household of God. We are, as a church, as believers, the household of God. And household is really the perfect word here. But it means a whole lot more to them than it means to us. Right? When I think of my household and you think of your household, we probably think of our nuclear family. Right? For me, there's dad, there's mom, there's four girls. That's our family. That's our household. I'm the head of that household. But for them... Households were huge. The head of the household is a father or sometimes grandfather or sometimes great-grandfather. It's not just a nuclear family, it's an extended family. Some siblings would have lived there, their spouses, their kids. Sometimes people that worked for the home would have lived there. Sometimes people that had moved to the area that didn't have any family in that area would have lived there. The household was big. It's not one family, it's a family of families, a family of nuclear families. And Paul tells us here that that's who we are. That shouldn't be that surprising to us. Back in April, we went through our series on the church and we said our identity is that we're a family. We're a family of saints who are ministers and messengers. And so when we say that the church is the household of God or a family of families of God, that makes sense. And God is the head of this household. Again, that would have meant a whole lot more to them than it means to us. For them, whoever the head of your household is, whether it's your dad, your grandfather, your great-grandfather, whatever status he has in society is the status that you have. If he has good character, you're seen as someone with good character. If he gets respected by people in the community, you get respected by people in the community. If he's not respected, you're not respected. Whatever his job is, if he's a carpenter, you will be a carpenter. If he is you know, a baker or a farmer, that's what your job is. Whatever his station is, whatever his position is, whatever his status is in society is what you get. Your identity as a person is determined by the head of your household. For us, it doesn't work that way. 
And my dad is in customer service. Thankfully, this is not customer service. As members of the household of God, our identity is determined, it's shaped, it's influenced by who our Father is. Paul tells us that we are in the household of God. That's our identity. Our empowerment comes in the next phrase. Behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Here, don't think church uh, so much of building or even people. It's more of an assembly, a community. We are the gathering of the living God. The emphasis here, the kind of contrast is between our God, who is the one true God who's living, and the gods of the nations who are dead, who are lifeless, who are idols. And I think that what Paul is trying to tell us here is that our household, our church, our gatherings should be different from the nations because our God is living. Our God is active. Our God is powerful. The church is supposed to be the place in the world that the presence of God is evident. And that should bother us. It's the place where the work of the Holy Spirit and the realities of the kingdom of God should be most clearly seen. That's what's supposed to happen when we meet. He is the living God. And our gatherings, our assembling, our community should not be lifeless. This is what we need. We cannot be the household of God without the living God working in us and through us. And so even this summer, as we're talking about transitioning to missional communities and being more intentional about sharing the gospel and being more intentional about making disciples, all of those are good things, but we can't do any of them if he doesn't work in us. We don't need, you know, new group names or better sermons or better music or to read more books or to to do anything. What we need is God to act on our behalf. If that doesn't happen, we're going to keep having lifeless lifeless gatherings. I'm going to stand up here and talk to you and you're going to sit there and stare at me. And I'm going to be bored and you're going to be bored. Think about it this way. Jesus, when he was on the earth, right? 100% man, 100% God. He said, I can do nothing. Nothing, not one thing without the Father. In the Gospel of John, not one time, not two times, not three times, not four times, not five times, not six times, but seven times Jesus emphasizes his dependency upon the Father. He can't do anything without him. And he's God. Why do we think that we're more able 
or capable or skilled or gifted or compelling to those around us that we can do what Jesus can't. We can't do anything without him working in us. Not the simplest thing, not the most menial task. We need him to work in us and through us because without that, we will be a dead church. We'll be just like all those people out in the nations that are worshiping idols. We need his presence in us, his power working through us because that's the only way we can be who he's called us to be. That's the only way we can do what he's called us to do. And what he's called us to do comes next. The household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, most of us, we probably know what a pillar is. But maybe not buttress, other than that it's kind of a funny word. So, I've got a picture, I think, which we can't see the text or the picture very well. What this is a picture of is a buttress. Uh, you can kind of see at the top there's the roof, right? And then the, the main edge of the building comes down. And then on the right side there's this, what looks to be a pillar on the outside of the building, but it's actually a buttress. What a buttress is, is it like an exterior pillar that helps hold up the roof of a structure. The line going from the buttress to the building is a flying buttress. If you've ever wondered what a flying buttress is, it's that thing that you can't see very well on that picture. The point is, both pillars and buttresses hold up the roof. That's their job, literally. They hold it up. And so when Paul says that we, as a church, our mission, our job is to be a pillar and buttress of the truth, what he's saying is our job is to hold up the truth. And just in case we forgot what this truth is, he tells us in verse 16, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And then he tells us, gives us a summary of the gospel, the This truth, this gospel, it's a mystery, not because we don't know what it is, not because it's some secret that we're trying to solve. It's a mystery because of the fact that we will never be able to fully wrap our minds around its message and its goodness and what it does in us. It's a mystery in that it's kind of beyond solving for us. I think that's even why Paul says it the way he does. Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. I mean, talk about a massive understatement. Elsewhere, he just kind of bursts into praise because of the gospel, but here he's almost overly simplistic. It's, It's great indeed. Somebody once said, and I don't remember who it is or where I read it, but they said, whatever your view of God is, it's too small, right? No matter what knowledge we have of who God is or what picture we have in our minds of what he's like, no matter what it is, no matter how big it is, it's always going to be too small because God is infinite. He is bigger than us and beyond our comprehension. The same thing goes for the gospel. No matter how good, no matter how great we think it is, it is greater. It's more good. We could sit in this room 
and talk and talk and talk and share stories about the ways in which the gospel is good news to us and hopefully not run out of things to talk about. We could share together the things that we have been forgiven from, the things we've been forgiven from this week, the ways in which the gospel is good news to us is not something we can exhaust. And this should be our confession, that it is great indeed, that it is a mystery of the greatness that's been shown to us on the cross because of who Jesus is and what he's done. No matter how great we think it is, it's greater. And it will always be that way. I mean, just look at the first phrase he gives us here. He was manifested in the flesh. An incredibly simple expression of a ridiculously complex idea. The God of the universe, the creator of everything, the one who made everything out of nothing, the one who made flesh, put it on and came here. Right? The incarnation is old news to us. We've heard it all before, but that doesn't mean that it isn't great. It doesn't mean that we should be numb to it and think, oh yeah, I've heard that before. I know that. That's, you know, that's Christmas. We'll talk about that then. Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. Every other religion on the planet is about us becoming God or us getting to where he's at. That's every other story that's out there. It's about us trying to be like him or us getting to where he's at. Our story, the gospel, is the story of the God, the true God, the living God, who came here, who became like us to redeem us, to save us. And even the end of the story isn't about us going there. The end of the story is about him coming here and bringing a new heaven and a new earth. The fact that he was manifested in the flesh is a great mystery. Paul tells us he was vindicated by the Spirit. This means that even though he died a criminal's death, paying for my sin and your sin, God raised him from the dead. What that tells us is that the payment he paid for my sin and your sin, it was acceptable to the Father. Right? Propaganda has a spoken word on the gospel, and he says that that means the check cleared. This vindication was seen by the angels. Jesus has been proclaimed among the nations. No longer is this great mystery restricted to one people and one nation, and one family, but it's open to all of us. All those people out there that are worshiping dead, false gods have an opportunity to hear the gospel. And that's happening. This week, there was this video going around Facebook about the spread of the gospel. And I think some of it, you know, went too far and that like all of America was like painted white with the spread of the gospel. And we know that there are tons of people here who haven't yet heard. But it was just so compelling to see how in the early church the gospel spread from a really, really tiny part of the world to all over it. The gospel is going out and he tells us that he has been believed on in the world. 
people are turning from death to life because of the work of the Holy Spirit, because of the work of the church of the living God who's empowered by him. And it tells us that he was taken up in glory. He ascended to the right hand of the Father where he intercedes on our behalf. He's the one mediator between man and God. It doesn't just mean that he prays for us. It means that all of our actions, all of our emotions, all of our affections, all that we do, all that we say, all that we are is mediated through Jesus to the Father. That's what allows me, that's what allows you to have a relationship with a perfect and holy and blameless God when we are none of those things. Everything that's me goes through him so that I can relate to the Father. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. These things, this gospel, this good news is greater than we understand. And it's greater than our not great response to it. As a kid growing up in church, I remember my dad was a very musically inclined person and he did special music one Sunday, which regardless of what you think of special music, that's not the point of the story. He sang this song, which I think it was by a guy named Bruce Carroll, who was a you know Christian music person. And the song was, uh, like who, I think the name of the song was Who Will Be Jesus? And like the song tells the story of all these people who have like really bad things happen in their life. Tragedy, suffering, pain, whatever. And the recurring theme or like the chorus or the refrain in the song is who will be Jesus to them? Like who's going to be faithful to step in their life and be Jesus for them? And my dad did a great job musically performing the song and I thought it was awesome. But now when I think about that song, I think about how wrong it is. Who will be Jesus? He will. He's Jesus. I'm not. You're not. We're not. No one that listens to that song is. We can't be Jesus to people. If we try, they die and go to hell because I can't save people and you can't save people. For people that are in pain and suffering and need the gospel, we won't always have the right thing to say. We don't have the answer. We don't know what to say. We don't know what to do. We can't always be perfect for them. That's his job. His job is to be Jesus. Our job, our mission as a church, is to be a buttress. Right? We don't be him. We hold him up. We say, I'm not him. but he is. Our job is to be those who continually make this confession, who continually tell people this good news that is more good than we know. And 
in the Gospel of John, the Jews come to John the Baptist because, you know, he's doing all this crazy stuff. He's eating bugs and honey and dressed funny and preaching and people are getting baptized. And so they come to him and they just say, who are you? And his answer is in 120. This is what he says. This is what it says. It says, he confessed. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. That's an incredibly simple confession, but one we often forget. We're not the Christ. It's not our job to be the Christ. It's our job to do what John did. That's point to him. And we can't do that on our own. We can't be a pillar and buttress of the truth without the living God working in us. We can't uphold the truth if we don't know the truth. We can't uphold the truth if we don't believe the truth, if we don't live the truth, if the truth isn't active and living in us. Our behavior matters. What we do, what we say, how we act, what we think, the emotions, the affections that go on in our heart, all of that stuff matters. But it matters not because it's us earning our way to him. It matters because it's by those things that we either uphold the truth or deny it. And the only way that happens is through him working in us as we become passengers to our behavior, where the gospel, where the truth, where the Spirit works on us and in us and through us. Paul's writing these things to Timothy and through Timothy to us so that we'll know how we ought to behave. But we're to behave in such a way that the Spirit works through us and makes us who he's called us to be. And we can't do any of this without him. So as we turn to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, that's exactly what I would encourage you to pray. That the Holy Spirit would work in you. That you would be shaken out of your lifeless stupor and lifeless response to the gospel that we wouldn't be a a sober church in that way. That we wouldn't be unemotional and just unpassionate about the greatness of the mystery of godliness that's been entrusted to us but that he would move us and move in us and that we would respond to what he's doing in us through an obedient life that upholds the truth. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we often try to do it on our own. We try to live lives and be who you've called us to be and do what you've called us to do all in our own power without trusting in you. But 
Father, I pray that you would send your spirit to work in us so that that's not the case anymore. That our common confession would be our need and dependency upon you. That we wouldn't muster up some kind of obedience that just perpetuates our lifelessness. But that instead we would wait upon you to act. Pray that you would rob us of all our comforts and escapes and make it so the only thing that satisfies us is you. We pray now that as we celebrate, as we remember together, Jesus, your death on our behalf, that you would just remind us again that it's not our obedience, not our behavior that saves us, but yours. And that your grace is powerful enough and sufficient enough to cover not only our past failure, but our present success. we ask that you would send your spirit to do what only you can in us. Amen.